Welcome back to Bodies in the Bayous, Season 2, The Candyman. I'm Morgan. And I'm Gretchen. The Candyman, a.k.a. Dean Coral, also known as Houston's mass murderer, stalked young boys in Houston and surrounding suburbs from 1970 to 1973, along with two teenage accomplices, Elmer Wayne Henley and David Owen Brooks. Elmer Wayne Henley would put a stop to Coral's reign of terror, by killing him with his own gun. Season 2, The Candyman, Episode 4, The Teenage Accomplices, David Owen Brooks and Elmer Wayne Henley. So in our last episode, we talked about who was Dean Arnold Coral, and today we're going to actually talk about who was David Owen Brooks and Elmer Wayne Henley. So David Owen Brooks was born on February 12, 1955 in Houston, Texas. He grew up in Houston Heights area. His parents divorced when he was five years old, and he spent, back in, he spent time back and forth between both parents' homes. Brooks was a quiet kid. He tended to be very sullen and was frequently bullied. He was skinny and had a bookish look to him wearing glasses. He was not into sports like so many of his other boys his age and tended to be a bit of a loner. Brooks hung around the candy shop with other kids after school. He met Coral when he was 12 years old. He was in the sixth grade. He began spending more and more time with him. Coral would take Brooks and other young boys on trips to the beach and on motorcycle rides. He later admitted that Coral began to molest him when he was 12 years old. Coral would give him money and other trinkets. When he was 15 years old, Brooks's mother moved to Beaumont, about 85 miles outside of Houston. After that, Brooks lived with his father so that he could still go to the same school. But his father was very abusive, so he ended up spending more and more time with Coral, who he saw as a father figure. Afterwards, he would give him money and other trinkets, so kind of paying him off a little bit. Brooks would later drop out of high school. So when you say that his father was abusive, is it physically? Is it, you know, emotionally? How, I mean, how was he abusive? So from what I can find, he was both physically and emotionally abusive. Um, I don't find any reference to his father also being sexually abusive. but um, And also a little bit seems that his father was pretty shut off from him, distant, um, which... Some people might not consider abusive, but in this case, I think, you know, for a young teenage boy, he was looking for that type of relationship, somebody who would take an interest in him and having the parent at home, not really taking any interest in him whatsoever was, was part of the issue there. Right. So it basically would make him more vulnerable and more open to Coral's ways of kind of grooming right mm -hmm. i think anytime you see coral having relationships with these uh boys in that way especially early on it does seem to be kids who um are susceptible to that because of the loss of a, a parent at home or um an abusive situation mm -hmm. As he got older, he said Coral would pay him 5 to $10 for sexual favors, but Brooks would often stay at Coral's apartment, thinking of it as, thinking of it as his second home. 
One day he walked into the apartment at 33 Yorktown in Houston and discovered that Coral had two boys tied up and was raping them. Brooks left and did not tell anyone what he had seen. It was the next day that Coral told Brooks that the boys were part of a gay porn ring and he offered him a car for his silence. So in exchange, he purchased him a green Corvette. Later, he told him that he had shot both boys. He also offered to pay him $200 for any boy he could bring to his apartment. Okay, so then this would be the first inkling to Brooks that Coral is killing young boys. Right. And he was, what, 16? So, yeah, he's about 16 years old at that uh-huh. point in time. So this would be the first first that Brooks knows about it. Later on... Um, I think Coral did share more with him that there had been other victims um, or, but what we do know is that he had killed before this, but this is the first time that Brooks realized kind of knew it. Mm-hmm. You know, it makes it so kind of curious for me as to why Coral at that point felt comfortable enough to kind of bring him in to it, to kind of make him aware of it, you know? Yeah, I don't, um... Is it because he's older? Is it because, you know, now that he's four years in this abusive relationship with him, that he kind of has that trust, you know? I think he certainly believed that he had enough And maybe to see, like, what... I mean, he's, like, pushing the limits almost at this point. And I think that had, had Brooks maybe, um, kind of pushed back on that he would have said oh no i'm i'm joking i'm kidding i just sent him off to you know such and such a place um but because as he's telling this you know brooks doesn't push back i think he's testing the control that he has with him oh sure but i mean brooks is probably terrified at that point yeah you know i mean he could be and at this point he knows he could be killed by this guy right you know so yeah that's a that's a lot of control that you have over a young man at this point So Brooks states that he had brought about five to six boys to Coral before introducing him to a young Elmer Wayne Henley. Henley was slated to become his next victim, but instead of becoming Coral's victim, he took a liking to him and began to um, ask him to come over, kind of brought him into this group as the third individual involved do you think that he had already molested henley before asking him um like you know when you say taking a liking to him so is it because he's been sexual with him i wonder you know like how does that turn i think it starts pretty early on at that point but i think um at least not for the few first couple of, of meetings. I think, you know, he starts to uh, get involved with him a little bit more, going over to his house, that type of thing. And then he slowly starts sexually abusing Henley also. Mm-hmm. So he mm-hmm. must have been able to see something in him on that initial meeting yeah. that says, ooh, I can groom him, basically. Right. I think that's that's probably exactly what he's seeing on that initial, initial kind of um, coming over is that he saw somebody that mm-hmm. he could turn into his next which is what predators predators can seek those people out in a room full of other people right so yeah the one thing that we know about 
victims is that unfortunately predators can see that mm -hmm. and coral definitely by this point is quite the predator right oh yeah so um at one point coral and henry actually Henley actually attempted to kill Brooks, getting him on the ground and strangling him. He begged for his life and they let go. So this is again, another example of the fact that for both Coral, I mean, for both Henley and Brooks, they know how dangerous of a situation that they're in that if they're not complying, he can kill them. And he, you know, the other one in that is going to follow along for, mm -hmm. to save their own life. Right. You just wonder what keeps them coming back. Like at that point when Brooks is being strangled by Henley and Coral, what are they telling him to keep him kind of coming back? I wonder. I think you know? it's just that emotional uh, relationship. It's almost like being in a domestic violence relationship with your abuser. It's the same thing in this type of situation. You're in a relationship with the person who is your abuser. And remember, he's going back home too, where he also has somebody who's his, who's abusive. Mm -hmm. So it's not, it's not as easy as thinking he's got this safe place to go. And then think also in the terms of how, homosexuality was looked at in those days and child abuse that kind of sexual child abuse would have looked at if he would have gone to somebody and said this is this is what's happening coral is sexually you know touching me they would have looked at him as being part of that right so like what was he doing in order to bring that behavior on mm -hmm. and i don't think that you know would have been seen quite the same as what we think of today is you going and telling the police i mean obviously there's some different parts here too because if he would have told the police that uh coral had murdered boys yeah it's a little bit different but i don't know that that his mind is able to see that oh sure yeah. so i think he's more trying to survive in this situation and maybe it's also that same type of situation like when you leave the abuse you're in more danger than when you're in it so staying going back and forth giving uh coral what coral wanted kept him safe right when Brooks was 18 years old on July 13th, 1973, he got married to a woman named Bridget Clark. Actually, she's a young uh, woman, so she's still in high school at the time. The two move into an apartment at 144 Perch. At the time that Coral was killed, she would have been pregnant with their first child. Bridget actually did not divorce um, Brooks until four years after he went to prison. We will cover more details about um, the trial and how he went to prison in the next episodes. But David Owen Brooks died in Galveston Prison Hospital in 2020 of COVID-19. His remains were unclaimed by any family for burial, so he is buried in Huntsville, Texas at the prison cemetery. So if he has an ex-wife and a child, why was, why was he unclaimed? Like, why were his remains unclaimed? Well, so I don't know whether or not his ex-wife or his child would have claimed him. Um, and we'll never really know what their feeling would have been on that because both of them had passed by that time. So he actually mm. outlived both his uh, young child and his uh, ex-wife. So...
Wayne Henley was a skinny teenager with curling, uncombed, dirty blonde shoulder length hair, a fair, light complexion. His face and neck were full of acne and acne scars. He had a light stubble, large green eyes that seemed almost like they were too large for him. The family lived in a small white house with his mother, Mary, and Henley's two brothers. Henley never got along with his father, who hardly worked, was drunk, and was abusive to all of his sons. He was also physically abusive, not only to his wife, but also to her mother. After the divorce, Henley's father left and did not have any contact with them or help financially. When he was younger, he was partially raised by his grandparents, who he idolized. He said of his grandfather, he was always a hardworking baker. His grandfather died when Henley was only seven years old. You know, the one thing that I kind of thought about, about Henley's grandfather is if he had been in the picture, you know, longer, that maybe things would have been a little different. It's almost unfortunate because he has this father figure that he's very close to. Right. So... Uh, Mary Pauline, Henley's mother, was a simple woman with graying streaks throughout her black hair, claimed that Dean Coral treated her son like his own child. He was the sweetest man who loved kids and was always had them around him. Coral would come over to Henley's house every night, either on his motorcycle or in his white van with a black couch in the back and sometimes 10 or 12 kids in it. He also made friends with Henley's mom, fixing things around the house, coming over for dinner, and he helped out with bills and brought groceries. He would purchase things for Henley so that he would have some money, and Henley also began stealing things to sell to Coral. So, a couple things from this. One, it's incredibly strange to me that the mother is okay with him showing up with a bunch of kids in the back you know, part of the van. I mean, I would find that to be a little odd. And the fact that he's kind of like pushed himself on that family, like paying bills and like really inserting himself into their lives without having that kind of relationship with his mother. You mm -hmm. know, it's more about the child. Like that seems kind of odd to me. I mean, I don't know if it's because, you know, as time has progressed, like we know more about grooming and predators and that kind of thing. But I don't know. That just seems weird, but maybe she's just overlooking some of that because he is helping her and her son so much. Well, I think there's a lot of things there with her. Um, and, and one of it is certainly at that point in time, they didn't necessarily look at it like we look at it now. I mean, an older gentleman hanging out with a lot of young boys that didn't have anything to do with like being a part a mentor in some ways officially yeah but i guess that's my thing it's not like he's mentoring them like he's got all these kids and they're going to play football right you know i mean that's mentoring somebody like what are you what is it there i i just think that it's it's something that they weren't necessarily um made to look at you know um i think one of the things is so Henley had this relationship with his pastor at the church where he'd go down to the, um, down the street and talk to the pastor at the church. And he never, 
the pastor said he never saw anything bad in the boy, that he had a sense of responsibility for his mother, and he was trying to be the breadwinner. And he would often go to the school and check on his younger brother's progress to make sure they were doing well in school. But the one thing that I didn't necessarily mention when we were setting up this uh, episode was that church later started to have these after school type programs and kind of an open uh, church for young youth in that Houston Heights area to go to so that they had a safe place to go where they knew they weren't being abused because of this. It was one of the things that the pastor did as a result of this was looking into these kids are susceptible to this type of thing going on and we need to have something different for them. And so that's really what comes out of the church's part of of this. So many of the kids who get involved and are later murdered are also from that area too. So I think, you know, him seeing that these kids are out there, that a guy driving around in a van can easily, you know, have access to them because they're looking for a place to go or someplace safe to do things and to hang out. You know, he looks at it as we need to have that for them. So that program actually ran, I think is still actually running today. Well, that's really good because I know just out of doing some research and reading comments, you know, from other um, interested parties, I guess, or people who know family members that had, you know, boys that were killed by them. They did say multiple of them had said they the kids just stopped coming to church, you right. know, and that's because they, you know, I guess they thought they ran away or were kidnapped or whatever it was missing. But that's interesting. And that's good that it does come some good does come from it, right. I guess, you know, you know, and only one other thing is that after all this and the trials go through and stuff like that, it was also a very safe place for Henley's mom to continue to go to seek um, a safe place for her and for Henley's younger brothers, because they weren't really involved in this, but for them, the backlash from the community was huge. And so so having that place too for them to be able to go to have that safe place was also this church well yeah i mean you have to feel bad for his mom you know it's not like she thought her son would be capable of doing right, anything no. like that right and then you know then essentially her son is is killing you know the perpetrator that was after him mm -hmm. and grooming him all these years and it's a very hard situation but the thing about christians let's just say or faith in church is they are all about that forgiveness and repentness and you know it probably was good for her and i'm sure his brothers needed that because can you imagine being the sibling of you know somebody that's committed such horrible crimes and well and not only just horrible crimes but horrible crimes right in that community sure so i, I mean, mean all those families are still living there and so they're going to school still with siblings of those kids um, about four months before shooting Coral, Henley had been prescribed a sedative, or what in those days they referred to as a tranquilizer, to help him with his nervousness, which I think of today as like anxiety that he was having. Friends said he would just sit and stare into space, into the distance. Henley's mother of the killing said he must have done something terrible to make her son kill him. The day after the shooting, of coral mrs henley gave a statement to the press where she said dean treated wayne like a son henley told reporters that coral was like a brother to him someone that he could take to 
for weeks before the trial, he said, she said she did not believe that her son was guilty of hurting any of those boys. When the press asked him why he killed Coral, he stated, I was tired of him doing things like that, and that was going to be either me or him. Henley admitted that he and Brooks had been contemplating murdering Coral for weeks. They believed that Coral would eventually turn on them and kill them. They also said that he was getting more and more sadistic in his killing and torturing in the, in the months before. Yeah, you know, what's interesting about that is what we do know is Brooks is having a child come very soon, mm -hmm. right? So he's probably panicking a little bit, like, what am I going to do? Maybe trying to clean up some loose ends. I don't know. You know, and it almost sounds like Henley may have been over-medicated at that point. So it just makes you wonder kind of what's... Well, I definitely going on in their heads. Or I definitely moment. think that that Brooks is looking for a way out. Yeah, you know, Brooks is is getting married. He's got this relationship. He has a child on the way. I, he's absolutely, I think, looking for a way out. Um, as far as Henley, I think he's trying to also find a way too. I mean, unfortunately, you know, you're not looking at the ability for him to go to counseling or have that access to that. Mm -hmm. Somebody's people are obviously seeing something in him that he's going and getting these tranquilizers too. Mm -hmm. So outwardly there are signs that something is wrong. Something is going on here. It's just at that point in time, I don't, you know, society really didn't have the skills to deal with that, but also to know, and you kind of wonder, even if this was happening in today's society, whether or not there still would have been that wall of secrecy. I mean, there's such fear him here by these two. If it's not, if we don't kill him, he's going to kill us. Sure. I mean, they were probably scared to death every single day. Right. You know, every single day they were probably looking over their shoulders and just scared to death, you know? And then I think one thing that's interesting out of what you just said about his mom's statement is, that Henley kind of looked at Brooke, I mean, as at Coral, like a brother that he kind of took to him. But why would that be? Is there something that they have in common? Is there, like, why do they get so close like that? Like, why? I don't know. Brooks told police that Henley had become more and more active participant in the abductions and the murder. He said that Brooks actually seemed to be enjoy. I mean, that Henley actually seemed to be enjoying causing pain to the victims. Henley admitted that this was true that if he was going to do something, why not do it well? He also admitted to being fascinated with strangling. He said that when he had seen it on TV, it looked easy, but in real life it was harder. It takes even longer. Sometimes that it would take the two of them a, a half an hour to strangle a boy. Oh my God. So, so I, it does seem like as far as Henley goes, he's getting more and more involved. Mm -hmm. He is the younger of the two in that, in that incident too, but there does, it does seem like it's more and more sadistic on his part. I mean, I guess if you're, you know, taking the time to strangle somebody and it's taking 30 minutes or however long, I mean, that's a, that's a very intense 30 minutes right. and you're sharing it with this person and you probably feel like this ultimate bond, so to speak, you know what I mean? Like, well, it's... and I think when you're talking about strangling somebody for 30 minutes, to me, it looks like they were enjoying that, like having that control. So they were probably strangling them, letting them come back. 
and then strangling them again. So almost enjoying the fact that they had that kind of control over this person. And that's so not what I was thinking. So, I mean, and it is something that you do see in these types of situations. No, and it makes sense. You know, I mean, I guess I just wasn't thinking because that's not how my brain would think. Right. You know, so it's like, yeah, not able to think that. No, way, it's, but. it's difficult to talk about, but mm -hmm. I really think that probably that's what's going on. Or they're taking turns. Yeah. Right. And so essentially when you are letting go and the other person's taking over, maybe, you know, like you said, that person's still breathing. You know? Well, and Henley, I mean, Cora, Carol's relationship with Henley does seem to be that of somebody who's teaching him. Mm -hmm. with Brooks it seems like Brooks is involved but more like brings these kids over and then kind of immediately leaves knowing what's happening but separating himself from it like if I'm not there when it's happening then it's not really happening mm -hmm. with Henley it seems like he's very much involved it's like the drug dealer bringing over drugs and not watching the drug use go on and the overdoses right it's the same thing right. you know but he's probably just thinking okay i've got given him this boy now i'm safe for a while like you said earlier you know yeah and so, i think that's definitely a, is that he uh he it's self-preservation it seems mm -hmm. like almost in his confession henley said he originally agreed to bring boys to coral for them to be sold into a homosexual ring for $250. It was only later that he found out that the boys had not been sold, but were actually murdered by coral. He also admitted that he continued to bring boys over, even though he never got paid. And Mrs. Henley. Mrs. Henley. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Henley said he could not remember the names of all the victims. Some of them were hitchhikers and others of them were childhood friends from the neighborhood. Yeah, it's it's a lot. <laughs> so with that, with that, um, I mean, it's just like we said in earlier episodes, it's these are kids that he grew up with. And then sometimes he'd even do it with the brothers of each other. You know, I mean, it's just it's so hurtful. I mean, it's hurtful to talk about. It's hurtful to think of, you know, and it's just I don't know. The safety of those kids was just taken away from them. In well, and the, and the safety of those families. Mm -hmm. I mean, those, those families really. And I mean, you think like as a, like as a parent and I have two girls, I can't imagine one of my kids going missing, but then another one, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, how devastating are you just thinking in your head? Like, how can this happen? Well, and you're going, you're going to the police and you're asking for help and you're begging for help. And they're basically taking out a clipboard and being like, oh, let me get his name for you. Mm -hmm. You know, the. And then come back in 30 days and we'll do this all again. The fact that these kids, so much of a large amount of them disappeared from exactly the same area, but we're not even talking about just the same area. These kids were going to the same school, yeah. you know, um, it just, it wouldn't have taken much to figure out some of what's going on here. And the fact of the matter was, these kids knew a lot of these kids knew that coral was doing something with young boys yeah i mean i mean they obviously they didn't know that he was murdering them but there was he had enough of a reputation in this neighborhood you know it wasn't maybe getting to the level of the parents but it was certainly getting to the level of the kids who were all hanging around sure because i'm sure they're talking amongst each other like you know 
from the last time we saw so-and-so, Billy Joe or whatever, he was hanging out with Henley and, you know, Coral. They were at the candy shop or whatever right. it is. I mean. Well, and there were kids who would refer to um, Coral as the bugger. Mm. You know, so a man who would, you know, basically bugger them, uh -huh. which was a term back then for, you know, annoying them. No, of, you know, no, it would be a term actually for uh, sexually abusing them. Really? Yeah. No way. So, yeah, strangely enough. And there were kids, there were kids talking about that. Wow. So, but again, this is, this is something that had such a shame to it, you know, like such a stigma to it. Well, sure. And again, like we've said in earlier episodes, you know, we know what behaviors look like with serial killers and things like that. They did not know that at that time. <laughs> so they would have never thought one person's doing all of this or two people or whatever the circumstances are. They just never would have thought that way. No, and I don't think the police were putting any of that together. No. We will talk more about Henley's arrest and eventually going on trial and being sentenced to a prison term. But in 1997, while in prison, a Houston art gallery began displaying his artwork to be sold. The show drew a large crowd of protesters, including members of the victim's families. Texas law did not prevent him from pro profiting on his artwork while serving time. Despite the protests, all 22 pieces sold out in two days. He would have several more shows over the next couple of years, all of those shows selling out. However, these pro proceeds would not go to Henley. He said that he wanted them to go to the victim's family. In truth, a third of the proceeds went to Henley's mother, a third went to a crime victim's memorial fund, and a third went to costs. These costs included purchasing more paints and canvases, as well as paying Henley's promoters and um, advertisers. So, I mean, I know while we say, you know, he wasn't profiting off of this, in many ways he was. First, he gets to kind of enjoy the self-expression, you know, and that gives him something from this, right? He gets to pay to have his stuff in art gallery, which could cost who knows how much, right? And he, that's a profit to him in a different way. It may not be money because, I mean, he can't really do anything with it, but it, he is in a really kind of roundabout way profiting from this, you know? Well, and and a lot of mom ways. is too. So, I mean, who knows if she's giving back the money to him? You do not know. No, in a lot of ways, he's definitely profiting for it because the money to purchase more paints and canvases and that kind of stuff is going into his commissary account in prison. Mm -hmm. He's not, it's not like he's not able to access those funds. I mean, other prisoners who don't have those funds in can't be, aren't painting landscapes and all sorts of things because they don't have the artwork. So he is profiting from it. Yeah. And I just, you know, it's this kind of like putting himself on a pedestal being like, oh, I'm not taking the money. It's going to the victim's families. You know, you also have to look at it too from another perspective. Not all these victims were identified in, in 1997. 
And so the state is still paying to have DNA testing and all sorts of testing done to try to identify the victims. That money didn't go to that. And the Crime Victims Memorial that they talked about, I actually cannot find any reference to that actually being built. So I don't know really where that funding went. I don't even know how I would feel as a family member of a victim about that coming from him. Like, I think that would actually enrage me. Like, I don't need your charity. You know, I mean, that is how I would honestly feel. So that's almost insulting. But many of these families struggle to actually even bury these kids. Mm -hmm. And so this whole thing of, you know, oh, I'm going to produce this art so that I can pay them back. I just, I'm sorry, I don't quite, I don't quite get on board with it. But then the other thing is, I, I'm not real sure who would want this artwork to be doning their walls. The artwork was not scenes of the, of the victims or anything to go back to the crimes he had committed. So he's not necessarily glorifying those. They're landscapes and flowers and fictional characters like Dracula. He painted on canvases as well as emu eggs. But it's not like he's an extremely talented artist. His paintings are crude, rudimentary, they're kind of like the entries that you would see in a middle school art fail sale. He's simply cashing in on the popularity that he's getting from being a serial killer. Others like John Wayne Gacy and Henry Lee Lucas have also cashed in on the same trend. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of, um, an odd thing to me, but we do know that there's those fans out there of, you know, these types of people, you know, like, you know, we, I mean, we know there is a market for it, unfortunately. Unfortunately there is. So it's also not the first time that Henley actually profited while being in prison. Shortly after he was convicted, he was paid for an interview on a tell all book where he seems to almost take pleasure in telling the gruesome story in his own way about what happened. I can see that though, because in some of the interviews too, he comes across almost as cocky, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, like he's like, if you're going to talk about me, you're going to get it straight. And this is the way it is. And, you know, don't, you know, put my name through the mud. You know, I mean, he comes off that way. Yeah. And the call me junior type. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's not Elmer. It's junior. (laughs) So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a tricky situation with him. He also profits in 2000, Josh Vargas, a movie producer, began to do a movie about the killings. He met with Henley and Henley's mother. During the meeting, he found out that Henley's mother had packed up all her son's belongings when she went when he went to prison and put them in a school bus sitting in a field in Houston. Vargas began to use these items in the bus for the movies, paying Henley's mom for the items. He used things like the actual clothes that Henley wore um some of the items as props and uh different things that's disgusting um can you imagine putting on okay can you imagine being an actor putting on those clothes after they've been sitting in a bus in houston for years i I mean i just can't first of all and then the aspect that he could have possibly murdered somebody in this i don't know i'm not i'm not i'm not wearing that (laughs) you wearing that (laughs) yeah (laughs) No, it's, it's it's really, it's very gruesome, you know? Um, No. So, so today he is currently still in prison. However, in August of 2022, he applied for parole on hardship grounds. 
So this means that either he's physically getting to the point where he's unable to remain in prison or he's terminally ill. Mm -hmm. So going back to that movie though, was it ever made? Uh, I've seen excerpts of it, but I haven't been able to actually track down the movie. Mm -hmm. So I, I do think that possibly it was made. It just might not be on the like accessible. Yeah. And yeah, I have, I've had little luck other than just kind of the interviews that he gave on it, but I could be searching for it completely wrong too. That, that could be part of the problem. It's not something that I'm signing up to watch. No, but you know, out of curiosity, I'd probably try. So, I mean, I don't know. Sometimes I get speechless about things like that. Yeah. You know, I mean, what do you say? So our next episode is going to cover the trials. So we'll have more on these two and the trials, um, a little bit more about how much they were involved and what their sentences will be. Thanks for joining us today. We always love to hear from our listeners. So please contact us with any questions that you might have. Um, you can reach us on our Facebook page, Bodies in the Bayous. You can always email us at bodiesinbayous at hotmail.com. And don't forget to listen to us wherever you stream your podcasts.